0: then please allow the breathing to just flow naturally. For the new people, uh, depending on which book you've been reading, uh, it will tell you that the best place is the nose, others will tell you the tummy, some will say the chest, some will say the whole body. Find one that at least tentatively feels like where you want to station your attention. Uh, what I would suggest is either the nose or the tummy to begin with. and. It's not a lifetime sentence, but it's helpful if you don't waver on that. That is, you just pick one place, uh, at least for the next few minutes, and just notice that you're breathing. Each one of us in this room is breathing. Let's, Let's all join one another and notice that. All of us are breathing. Another way of putting it is that we're all alive. Did you know that? Each one of of us is alive. And let's tune into this process of breathing. Let everything else go its way. We're not trying to push anything out or hold on to anything. Thoughts, let them come and go. Sounds from the street or in the room, there's nothing much we can do about it, so let those also come and go. In any moods, images, let it all come and go, but feature the breathing, the sensations. It's not an image of of breathing, but actually sensations, quite palpable and concrete. As the lungs fill up and empty, you can feel sensations if you're at at the abdomen. There's something quite clear that can be felt at the nose. As air touches the nasal passages, the upper lip, you can feel something. Just that. There's no particular way that the breathing is supposed to be. challenge is for us to be sensitive to these breath sensations, however and wherever they turn up, in the midst of everything that's other than breath, a very active mind, perhaps, the sounds of New York City pouring in here, or in the room. And so the breath is featured but we're not at war with all its other breath, other than breath. Quite the contrary, we're peacefully, we're learning how to peacefully coexist as we breathe in and breathe out. Let's do that for a few minutes, please. from time to time as you may have noticed our attention wanders from breathing and we find ourselves caught up somewhere else typically it's imagining something in the future or recreating something that's happened in our past and in fact we're not with the breathing as soon as you see that Very gently, gracefully, and without any blame, just ease back to the breath sensations once again, wherever you've decided to do that. people please check the rest of us as well is your attention in fact with the breathing or are you somewhere else if you're somewhere else please don't turn that into a problem just come back to the breath and do that as often as you need to giving full care and attention to this in-breath and this out-breath just as much. You don't need more instruction. It can help the mind really calm down, become a bit more stable and experience some peace and joy. But it takes patience. Please listen to the sound of the bell. There's nothing for you to listen to. Free to stand and stretch if you need to. I've lived long enough to have heard uh, three realms called The Last Frontier. The most recent thing was on the cover of Newsweek or Time a few years ago and it was The Depths of the Ocean, The Last Frontier. That is, we don't fully understand what's down there. And now with technology and so forth, uh, it's possible to really explore this frontier and get to know the ocean. Before that, and I don't remember what order, there was the, of course, space and the microscopic world. And the last time, I didn't think twice about it, the last time was the, was seeing the Newsweek or Time cover, uh, that the, the ocean was the last frontier, I had to kind of kind of chuckle. Because, as far as I can tell, Uh, the last frontier, one that's hardly exhausted and one that we don't know very much about is ourselves, our own consciousness. Um, The evidence of it I think is overwhelming that we don't. Uh, Our technology is miraculous, science is miraculous. The development in those areas, applications of science is staggering, and it's, and it's still going. Uh, the society appreciates it, supports it. Uh, very, very talented individuals donate their lives to continue that development. The inner world of consciousness, it's not that nobody's been there. There have been what we can call psychonauts, who've been there for thousands of years. Uh, some are called mystics, yogis, masters of this, that and the other, whereas there have been some very bold and courageous human beings who've gone to extraordinary depths inside, so to speak, human consciousness, and have even left records of what they find, often in clouded language, clouded only because it's a, a particular culture, a particular set of symbols, uh, or one that it's hard to, that's hard to understand unless we have something resembling meditative experience. So what I'm trying to say is there's a vast world that awaits all of us who meditate. And it's highly significant, I would say urgent, that we begin to get to know this world. Uh, it's not a, a simple matter. But if we go to just one stream of people who've attempted to do this, the Buddhists are not the only ones, obviously, but there have been people, probably humans, of any, from every culture, uh, with or without the help of texts or methods, who've had a deep yearning to try to understand what does it mean to be human? What is this? Who am I? Uh, Philosophy 1.1. Uh, and who have lived not satisfied with just uh, literal definitions and information about what life is about and have felt the need to explore for themselves and to find out how they're living, why they're living that way, and uh, what the significance of it is. There have always been people like this. Um, Some with the help of, let's say, the Buddha's teaching. That can be a a mixed blessing. It can be a deterrent. That is, the Buddha has left a tremendous amount of help in terms of techniques, methods, and hints. But you can get so caught up in the forms that you give up responsibility for the final responsibility, which is ourselves. Whereas each one of us inescapably, must directly understand ourselves. And we can read the Gita, and the, and the, the, pad, uh, the uh, Dhammapada, and all the suttas, and you tell me, the Bible? Magnificent literature. But if we don't read our own book, it may not amount to much. The Buddha said that the root problem, so this is the particular stream I know best, so I'll be approaching it from that stream. But I don't mean to conclude, that the Buddha had a monopoly on this interest or even what has been discovered about it. The root problem of our suffering, of our unnecessary suffering, and that's what the Buddha said in the original teachings, as best we know, is the only thing the Buddha was teaching, suffering and the end of suffering. Not pain, some people misunderstand that and think that our practice is a kind of Hollywood ending that if you, if you practice long enough and meditate, do enough retreats somehow there'll never be any pain. If you have a body, there will be pain. No matter how much organic food, no matter how many headstands you do, no matter how much pranayama, no matter how many retreats if you have a body, there's no way around that. That's the nature of the body. So you must have pain. It must age it must grow ill, and it must die. We haven't been singled out, in case you feel it's unfair. There's uncountable number of people who've already done it. <laughs> They've really done it. I can, we can't. It's staggering how many have already done this. Successfully. <laughs> in fact, in a certain way, every night in our sleep we die. There's a period of a few hours, apparently, uh, dreamless sleep, without which, if we didn't have some of it, at least some of it, some evenings, we would be mad. We'd be crazier than we already are. And in that period, uh, there's a period of there's no thinking. Uh, there's no dr- it's dreamless sleep, so there's no one there to have problems that need to be worked out, interpreted, uh, figured out, corrected, and all the rest of it. And we seem to manage quite well and wake up in the morning and begin our day again. Uh, Is it possible to accomplish something like that, but while awake? So the Buddha says ignorance is the main cause. And one of the meanings of ignorance is to ignore. What is it we're ignoring? Clearly ourselves. We don't understand ourselves very well. Uh, And we pay a huge price for it in the extreme it's called war, I'm not being political is that everyone is against war everyone is talking about peace, always and wars never stop. It's not new a friend of mine and myself when we were students uh, <clears throat> in college we uh, we uh, opened up a huge history, I'm not sure it was Toynbee or someone and we just with our eyes closed open it up and put our finger in any historical period there's always some, someone uh, killing someone with good reasons why and justifying it and it just goes on and on this need to distinguish ourselves from one another this really is mine no it's not and so forth it's still happening okay. I don't think that legislation and conferences uh... UNs are going to change this in any profound and radical way. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Of course we have to. But as long as human nature keeps being the way it is, we keep repeating the same thing again and again, no matter what the social system is. A lot of Marxism and communism, it's a very, very beautiful teaching. If you've ever read some of it, not the later uh, decorations that were put on it, It's some of the highest motives that human beings could have about how to live together. And it turned out to be one of the cruelest, bitterest mistakes that human beings have made. How come? Um, So what I'm saying is, it's not a luxury. I hope you already know that, and that's why you're here, that to understand yourself is to suffer less. To understand yourself is to uh, give a great gift to all the people who are in your life. If you, don't, if, you're, if you don't, without even having any malice, we tend to make life difficult for ourselves and for the people who are in our life. My first Vipassana teacher, not my first meditation teacher, but my first Vipassana teacher, uh, was an Indian gentleman named Anagarika Munindra. Many of us started with him. Joseph, Sharon, a number of others. And apparently he would ask you sometimes, why do you want to study Vipassana meditation? And I said, what was true for me? I want to get to know myself. I want to get to understand myself better. And he looked at me and he said, oh, okay, great. Sit down and take a look. We call that meditation. And we have all kinds of other fancy words about it. Uh, wow, you mean that's it? Yeah, sit down and take a look, it's all there I would add to that that is if you think you can only sit down and take a look and exclude merely what's most of the rest of your life it ain't going to work no matter how many 3 months, 18 months 15,000 month retreats you do in silence you No, know, maybe if it gets that far maybe you break through where what I'm saying is irrelevant I think a person can break through at such depth, Ramana Maharshi, or there have been people that um, taking on daily life itself as a field from which some of the most valuable insights into ourselves come uh, may not be necessary because you've dropped all... you're not ignorant, you really understand and uh, all the wisdom and compassion that you need uh, is there for you, it's intrinsic to us, that's also what the teachings are saying. Or is the deepest benefits that come from meditation are not something that you cultivate. It's something that is revealed because it's our nature. Uh, metta is a wonderful practice. I'm assuming most, if not all of you, have done it. Maybe not the new people. That's a cultivated practice, the practice of loving kindness. Can it improve the quality of your life and of your experience? Of course. If you've done it, you know that so. But let's just take that as an example. One time, I was leaving for a two-month uh, self-retreat by myself in a friend's cottage out in the country, and I was studying with a Cambodian teacher. And uh, you know, it's sort of in Dharma circles. It's this: you say these things sometimes. Sort of, well, um, uh, Ajahn uh, mum that was his name. Uh, I'm going, as you know, I'm going away for a couple of months to be my uh, to do a self-retreat. Uh, send me lots of metta you know, like I'm going into the combat zone and he almost got sucked in and he said, oh, of course then he got stern and he looked at me and he said oh, stop it he said, you know you have all the metta you could ever want right in here you know, what what does he have to send me loving kindness Uh, now that's a teaching Uh, it isn't true for you unless you know it and you can only know it by really tasting it and you can only taste it by there has to be a pudding the proof of the pudding is in the eating first there has to be a pudding then you have to bite into it then you have to taste it because maybe it's all baloney maybe it's a hype maybe when you go down deep and deep enough uh, you don't find all these wonderful things that uh, the sages and the masters tell us is there and the Buddha of course counsels us not to take teachings on their face value as a final authority. Uh, let me get to the title, which fortunately the brochure arrived uh, yesterday for me, and uh, it was like some cold water thrown on me, because I made up the title literally a year ago. And I think I emailed one of you to remind me what it was. and uh, Self-knowing a quiet passion. Let's go, th- go through the terms, some of the terms. Self. Know thyself. Self-knowledge. It's been in Western culture. And if you read Socrates, that's the cutting edge of the whole thing. Know thyself. The unexamined life is a life not worth living. Someone asked Socrates, do you know yourself? And he said, no, I don't. But I know that I don't. And what is a teacher? Socrates says, a teacher is a midwife, like a midwife. And that's all a teacher can do. Maybe there are some who can do more. I'd be happy if I can do even this a little bit. Starting with myself, of course. And I've had teachers who have been midwives to me. Uh, they're helping you to give birth to yourself. No one can do that for you. It's a natural process. Once you get it going, there's a yearning inside of us to be free. There's a yearning for external freedom. You see it on the planet, sometimes breaking loose. We'll we'll even risk our life for external freedom. But somehow, we're not willing to do much for internal freedom. In fact, it's kind of news that there is such a thing it's even news that we're enslaved already that if you when you free yourself outwardly which is wonderful that provides uh, a reasonable sympathetic um, congenial possibility to allow yourself to free yourself inwardly if you don't have outer, outer freedom uh... so much of our life is uh, brutalized or harsh, that to, to go inside can be is like a luxury, even can be taken as an insult. We do have a fair amount, maybe a lot, of outer freedom. Okay, so self-knowing. Usually the word isn't self-knowing, I'm intentionally making it a verb. It's usually self-knowledge, and that's a good thing to have self-knowledge. A wise person has a lot of self-knowledge. An unwise person doesn't. The reason I'm not crazy about knowledge is that knowledge has... uh, what it communicates is an accumulation of something. That is, you study something, let's say even yourself, and then you accumulate it. Some of you are writing in your notebook. It's up to you. But uh, people go on retreats and want to fill up notebooks with insights about themselves. I find it laughable. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be insulting. Not notes about some of this, but uh, you to fill up a notebook of insights about yourself to what? Add another chapter to the story of you starring you? Written, directed, filmed by you? Even the popcorn is sold by you? It's all it's just a one-person show everything is you add to that in this uh, in my resume larry becomes a meditator larry starts to become a little bit of a freer meditator he isn't the way he used to be you know running after this running after that and suffering a lot now he's seen the light oh that's nice let's take that chapter make it into something solid then you meet a new person in a coffee shop It's great You just share that chapter. And it's funny how what we call memory, which is a lot of what self-knowledge is made up of that, as I'm using it, we treat it as if it's a fact. But I've looked at what my mind does, I don't know what yours does, it's not a fact, it's an interpretation of the past. And it seems to change in terms of what's needed in the present. It's funny how my past, I've found, gets reinterpreted so it's quite useful for, for what's going on right now. Just like countries do that, make up a history that's in the service of now. So, knowledge is something that you accumulate, you store it up. In words or even not in words, just in consciousness. Now, there's no one's saying that you have to kill your biography. It's not like you meet someone new and they say, uh, well, tell me about yourself. No, I'm a Buddhist, we don't talk about... I can't tell you where I was born or what schools I went to or what my work we're done with all that I'm not saying that but what I am saying is that uh, what we call the self and this is something each one of us has to discover firsthand has a lot to do with taking the materials of the past and turning them into notions about ourselves and then retaining it and creating a scenario: creating a profile, creating a drama, creating a story, uh, which we then think of as being me. And even the future is used that way. We imagine a future where if we only meditate enough, then in the future we're going to be incredible. Right now, we're so-so. Maybe some of us feel less than so-so. But if we keep doing this this Vispasana, someone once called it that, I didn't correct them. If we we keep doing this meditation, someday we're going to get to that place called enlightenment, big explosion, lights go off, and somehow never have any problems again. Do you think that's true? Or even if it is, it can be useful to give you some energy to take a look at now, but what really does bring you to something that is genuinely beneficial, is right here, right now, at this moment. And it keeps being like that. So self-knowledge is more, and has its place, the story of me and my life, in words that can be passed on. If you ask me about my life, I can speak and tell you about where I grew up, which is not far from here, Lower East Side. Uh, and what went through this, and why I got interested in this. And you know, interviews in all the Buddhist magazines are often about that. How did you come to the Dharma? And uh, I've given many wonderful sounding reasons and then after I leave I scratch my head and I don't know how I got here to tell you the truth. Self-knowing is different. Self-knowing is something that happens in the active present. It's something that's valuable in the seeing of the way you are living in this moment. Your motives, your reactions, your, both verbal and physical. And what's happening right now in this moment, alone and with other people or with objects or with nature, it doesn't matter. The value of it is in this moment. It's in the clear seeing of this moment. And as the practice ripens and matures, it's not even in words. Although then you can make up words about what just happened. And some people are good at that, and that can be useful. Especially if you have the bad karma to have to teach these things. That's me I'm talking about. Lighten up. It's okay. I mean, spirituality isn't all that... You know, you can have fun, too. We can laugh our way to awakening. I hear it's very serious business. It is. It's hard work. And there's also... There's joy in it. There's discouragement, etc. Self-knowing is active. It's something that's valuable in this moment. That's it. It's not... You don't keep filing it away and then going back and checking... Uh, into that archives known as me to find out what to do next that's useful for technical knowledge you learn a skill system of course, we're not asking you to have amnesia about carpentry or dentistry or whatever your work is, that's needed but to proceed uh, on this journey, it's not so much about accumulation as letting go of emptying the more you accumulate, the further you get away from what it is but don't get literal. It doesn't mean you can only have one pair of shoes. You can have 10,000 pairs of shoes. That doesn't mean you're, that you're... Uh, probably if you have 10, 10,000 pairs of shoes, you're suffering a great deal. And something needs to be looked at. But theoretically, you can have 10,000 pair of shoes, and it's not a problem. You can have one pair of shoes, be a very humble... Uh, have three grains of rice a day never have sex, never handle money. I'm speaking, uh, you know, I've lived in monasteries. And you can be as big uh, an egomaniac as the people who most, or more obviously seem to be. When I was in Thailand at, at Wat Pabantad, there was one Canadian monk who one day confided in me when I was leaving. For He waited until it was time for me to leave. And he said, you know, let me tell you, I've been here for three or four years with Ajahn Mahabua." Said most days. I can't help. I walk around. All I, I'm a monk. I'm a monk. I'm a monk. I can't stop it. All that you know. Sort of, I'm a monk. That person isn't a monk. I'm a monk. That person. <laughs> uh, so it's not in the forms. It's not how many outfits you have or don't have. Uh, it's more the mental baggage that we have. The real renunciation is not about having no car or never using makeup or not dyeing your hair or having a teeny tiny bank account uh, which can be just an inverted ego trip I'm talking now it's spiritual cash value somehow the poorer you are the more holy you are you're just poor (laughs) I mean maybe you're holy but it's no guarantee of anything so the real renunciation is what? It's to renounce this sense of uh, attaching to almost anything that happens all day long as being me or mine. So now we get to self-knowing. I thought Buddhism is about not-self or no-self, and now he's saying self-knowing. I'm getting confused. Therapy talks about ego strength and uh, having a better self-image, but I thought the Buddha is way beyond that. Yes and no. Um, To begin with, uh, and uh, this is my understanding of, if you read the Buddha, there have been other beings who probably have been just as enlightened as the Buddha. But there may not be too many who are skillful a teacher, who left a record of uh, ways and means of accomplishing certain things. There's really a lot available to us, and there's a lineage that's kept it alive in... The different Asian countries and now it's here. Um, in oneself, in one sense, self-knowing is, would be recognizable to any reasonable person who's thought about life. That is, their psychological insights about yourself. This is not to say they're useless at all that the kinds of things that come out in good therapy, or even if you never go into therapy, just by living, you learn about life. You can learn about life. Some people don't seem to learn much. But it's possible, if you pay attention, that you can learn as you live. Uh, elderly people, sometimes sometimes we elderly people, think that uh, because we have a lot of gray hair, we have something to tell you young whippersnappers. I've seen that one before. Sometimes I think it's true, Yeah, I've been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, but I guess you have to go there, do that, and then get the t-shirt. And then you'll see uh, Uncle Larry wasn't so stupid after all. There really isn't Uncle Larry here? Is he here? No? Oh, there's Uncle Larry. Okay, welcome. Uh, The way the Buddha taught, he didn't snatch your every attachment away sometimes uh, when you teach and those of you who are beginners let's say you're with the breathing in out in out and I don't know if you've tasted it yet but if you keep doing it the day will come where you will just feel wonderful you'll have some continuity with the breathing and suddenly you'll feel a wave of peace and calm maybe it only lasts 30 seconds <laughs> and tremendous joy right okay. it, it keeps going if you keep going um, And you really are happy. This meditation stuff is okay. I'm going to join that New York Insight, pay my dues, and uh, and go off to IMS. Maybe I'll become a nun or a monk and go to Burma and shave my head. And you know, off based on thirty seconds of well-being. Well-being to give you the energy and the faith to understand that this practice is something to keep doing. It's not like. Uh, day one you take the highest teaching, just cut, it's all baloney, just drop everything. Try it, you can't do it. The Buddha was uh, an incredibly skillful teacher, and my understanding is how he worked, it's not just my understanding, is that first all kinds of coarse attachments are allowed, and then as the practice gets refined, snatches them away, and in exchange for more refined attachments, which in turn to more refined and more refined until there's nothing to snatch away. You don't just do that on day one, and so a certain amount of feeling good about yourself, and about this practice is a fortunate endeavor for you, it's good that you came upon it, and that it's helping you if there's a feeling of well-being, and if there's a little bit of holding on, for example, concentration, sometimes people will get into the jhanas, deep absorptions, they're obviously very attached. And do you have to snatch it away? Not yet. At least in my teaching, not yet. Let the person gladden the heart quite a bit more. Uh, It's healing. It gives the person confidence in the Dharma. Uh, It heals certain wounds. Uh, There's a joy that maybe was absent in life. And there comes a point where the person is is clinging to it so much, uh, that it becomes suffering because it doesn't last, it goes away, and then the person suffers. And if you grasp on to money, sex, power, food, clothes you tell me anything and hold on to it in a changing world, anicca impermanence you've heard that one of course, you're going to suffer. The law of impermanence is not going to get repealed, it just keeps rolling on. You don't want to live by it, fine, you're going to pay a price whether you call it wisdom or just common sense we live in a world that's constantly changing and in uncertain ways it's not changing according to schedule we got it with 9-11 but it's been going on long before 9-11 and it's going on right now life is uncertain that's a very big one to understand that we don't own it that things are unfolding in their own way it's impermanent but it's not just impermanent it's uncertain And can you get comfortable with that? Because it's true. If you can't, it's a bumpy ride. Okay. So, self-knowing. At a certain point, you start to suffer by clinging to notions of yourself. Now, up until then, and even until, let's say, people who are in quotes more advanced states, there's value in learning about the ordinary ways of life. There really is. Uh, it's not that that's trivial and useless. Uh, learning about your fears, your uh, avoidances, learning about how you uh, do this and do that. If you pay attention, and this practice is, is all about paying attention, how can you miss some of that? You just Life is teaching all the time, and some of the times you get it. And so you learn something about your, about your life. Uh, and it's recognizable. You could share it with, your, with people who don't meditate, who never read a word of this, ne- don't know what emptiness means, never heard of the Buddha. It doesn't mean, you can tell them that you learned something. You, you've been in this situation. Someone dies or what something happens. And you share with them something you've learned. It's just part of being human. Humans can learn. And, that's, and therapy is aimed at that, good therapy. But it comes up in meditation as well. Don't you learn something on the cushion? And it's about the self, just conventionally speaking. So then what's all this stuff about not-self? Well, I would say self-knowing, to begin with, is you find out these things about yourself that are commonsensical. I found out this about myself, I didn't know that. Uh, There's a huge amount, the Buddha points this out again and again, self-deception is very, very powerful in us humans that's why self-knowing is not so easy that's why we need the help of friends, teachers, books, texts practicing together life itself sometimes shakes us up and we're forced to see areas that we've been denying if we, if we don't do it voluntarily sometimes it, we have to do it painfully so self-deception is quite strong and little by little uh, the self deceives itself because it wants to think about itself as being a certain way. And it's listen to your ego. Have you ever spent the day with your mind? Uh, see how your mind spends its day? It's quite fascinating. Uh, if you have to have a strong stomach. Uh, but it get, if you don't get, if you don't quit, it gets quite hilarious. But uh, most of the day, it's about me how it's going for me who said this to me what they, th- who, who should have said that but didn't and what am I going to tell them on Monday when I see them and uh, why didn't I already and, uh, and it's me uh, re- enhancing me me detracting from me me seeing how other people see me uh, this hist- memories about me imaginings about what me is going to be Uh, It's all self-cherishing. That's a Dharma term for it. It's a wonder that we communicate with each other as little as we do. (laughs) As we all meet each other through these notions about ourselves, and we're protecting ourselves and trying to improve it, and then we come on the path. And we know that there's, we have to go deeper than that, Uh, but a lot of it is that, and it's helpful. So at first, self-knowing is something positive and recognizable it's finding out who you are in a conventional sense conventional here not meaning bad ordinary sense not meaning bad familiar all of us could grasp it but finally as the teachings deepen as you're ready for it a self-knowing is finding out who you aren't it's not finding out who you are it's finding out who you aren't and at a certain point that becomes far more interesting and you are strong enough or and the practice is stable enough and you've tasted the rewards of not being when you're not there love is there when you're not there real beauty is there when you're not there real compassion is not there Uh, more and more as you start to see what the verbal teachings are pointing to and that if you for example silence we're getting to the other part a quiet passion, you realize that you are the problem, nothing personal, I mean me too. And so wisdom is helping uh, to allow that to go, to go into abeyance and have a, a graceful, a gentle funeral. At least take a lot of the power out of it. In other words, the person is the problem. Old Stalin, you know, that almost could have been one of the great sages of all time, joining the Buddha and Jesus and all the rest. Rumi, he just missed by a hair. He could have been a great sage. Stalin, you know what I mean? Joseph Stalin, Papa, Uncle Joe. Okay. One time from one biography I read, his chief assistant came up, uh, came up to him and said, the people who are helping me, they are an incredible problem. You know, he started, day after day, started telling Stalin about this one won't do that, and that one does it, but it's not done well, problem. And uh, the next day they were gone. And Stalin said to him, No person, with a Russian accent, of course, no person, no problem. (laughs) He was too literal. (laughs) He just missed Dharma and extraordinary wisdom by a hair so he died that way poor Joseph and he brought a lot of other people with him millions But so that self-knowing becomes uh, it's like a striptease uh, you, keep, you, car- you push yourself into a corner uh, finally well I'm not fit th- because if you can observe something if you can be mindful of it, aware of it, how can it be you? if you're aware of, you see it's an idea I'm a this and that, and I have always been a this and that, and I'm gonna be a this and that, there. But you can hear the mind is concocting that. It's an image, maybe a picture of yourself, or a verbal conclusion. Maybe it's ancient, from childhood. Maybe you just made it up. Maybe you just learned it, now that you're a Dharma student, is a new kind of twist to it. But you can become aware of it, and if you don't identify with it, poof! What is it? It's, It's put together by thinking it's put together from the past thoughts and then notions about what the future might bring hope or or fear and if you can watch it, what you watch is that it's a succession of images and words emotions, notions, moods they come and go, come and go there's nothing you can point to and say that's me you can point to it and say that's me but in the next moment it will be gone, there will be something else maybe contradictory so, again, puts it beautifully, a Japanese master of these things, if I could paraphrase, uh, to study the self is to know the self. To study Buddhism, the Buddhist teaching, the Buddha way, is to know the self. To know the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. So, in a sense, we're coming to know what this thing called self is, It doesn't matter, certainly not to me, whether you agree, not-self, that sounds crazy. If there's not-self, who gets reborn, who gets enlightenment? Oh, no, not that one. These are questions that teach you, I can't stand when I hear them. Well, then, who gets enlightened if there's nobody, you know? Oh, no, not that one again. And, you know, I try to grind out an answer, but... You do, but I thought there is no me. There isn't, but there... ah. (laughs) there is selfing again a verb is going on the mind this machine doesn't stop it produces images and conclusions and notions but what is different is as you study it you see it's not enduring it arises and passes away it has no uh, intrinsic nature you've heard this language or something like it just but it's not a new belief to believe in a new ideology I believe that there's nothing I'm a Buddhist I believe that there's no self and maybe you feel secure and there are 18 trillion Buddhists on the planet and I'm one of them and then you feel an affiliation you feel a sense of belonging I'm not a Jew anymore I'm not a Christian anymore those that those are trivial religion. I'm now and this is big time you know I'm nobody <laughs> And I'm a group of people, all of whom are nobody. This is not meant to be, uh, you can be, if you affiliate and think you're a Buddhist, someone asks you, religion, Buddhism. Fine, I'm not saying do or don't, that's your business. But the Buddha is, that isn't exact, the Buddha taught Dharma. Dharma is not an ism, Dharma is the way things are, natural truth the lawfulness in the universe, particularly about how the mind works and how our understanding of that workings of the mind enables us to disentangle ourselves from a a massive amount of unnecessary suffering and how our not understanding, for example, what happens when you're engaged in thinking? We don't really, we're too busy doing it to try to understand, well, what happens when I'm engaged in thinking? What is really going on? well if you practice mindfulness you're going to see you'll see the difference between a thought and what the thought is describing they're not the same thing But thought tells us what's happening and then we duh okay whatever it tells us that's true it isn't it's just an interpretation new bumper stickers in Cambridge don't believe everything you think it used to be I'd rather be golfing I'd rather be fishing now it's don't believe whatever you think it's becoming bumper stickers are they must be meditating something's going on (laughs) anyway so self in one sense it's the familiar meaning of it it's me trying to understand myself how I am with my wife with my husband with my friend with my children whoever's in your life and that's a level of comprehensibility that you can grasp, everyone can. Whether you meditate or not, meditation can help you with that. But then as you go deeper, there's another dimension that opens up that's not about who you are, but about who you aren't. And you're, no characterization that you can come up with. However you want to represent yourself, to yourself to begin with, and then to others, uh, it's just a. Re- it's an object, it's an objectification. It's just, you making up to yourself who you think you are. And practice is seeing that. And as you see it, it starts to fall away. And so that, views and opinions, last thing to go. We hold on to them ferociously. So then what's left? Well, what's left is who you always were. And then, you know, you've probably read the same Dharma books I have. Buddha nature, original nature, true nature, original nature of the mind. Uh, lots of nice words for it. None of the words will do it justice. Enlightenment is sometimes called the great silence. But that doesn't sound it sounds like just a holiday, a break. We don't have words that are adequate. The silence that's being talked about there is highly charged with extraordinary subtle energy, that's, that's life. And that, in our words, can be called wisdom and compassion. But it, there are no words there. Um, self-knowing, a quiet passion. Looks like we may not get past the title tonight. Of <laughs> the talk, that is. Before we leave, before I stop talking and then I want a QA, and I do want to give you, leave you with something about relationship and lay practice which I feel is very very important and you can decide whether it is or not passion when you think of passion uh, don't you think of let's say flamenco dancers or uh, you know someone feverishly making love or uh, you tell me passionately uh, it's something that's external it's obvious, and there's a release of tremendous energy, and everyone, you know it when you're doing it, and it's clear and articulated and visible. You know you know what I'm getting at. This is not that kind of passion. Yet, if, if you don't develop this kind of, you can call it something else, love, interest, uh, a love of learning, of, of insight into yourself, of this whole process. I don't see how you're gonna do it for very long. I would have quit a long time ago. But in order for that to happen, I think most of us need fruit. The practice needs to yield some fruit. And as we begin to see that we are involved in a real endeavor that's useful for us, the Buddha made, I think, an extraordinary statement, I'm paraphrasing, it was an assertion that human energy can be proper human energy properly directed can release us from suffering that is possible now you might say i'd settle for even just a little bit to ease off yes okay if you haven't seen it i mean i've seen it i've seen it myself and i look around there are some familiar faces i think you've seen it But the possibilities of the suffering that can be let go of are staggering, in my big, fat opinion. Um, The passion for this process of self-knowing, of understanding yourself as an expression of life, is a quiet passion. Uh, Go on a retreat. We'll be doing one tomorrow, or even just before. And you see a bunch of people just sitting there quietly. Uh, that doesn't look like very passionate to me, they look like they're dead. Bunch of dummies sitting there. Yet, in order to do it with any continuity, and this is a marathon, it's not a sprint, uh, there has to be a quiet flame. Uh, Awareness in my experience becomes a flame and you don't resolve your problems or solve them It's as if you just burn them up with clear seeing. And if you want to call that insight or understanding, it is, but it's not in words. Somehow you grasp something that's stupid. Uh, It's it's very obvious. Somebody is suffering, you're kind to them. It's not that you need a course in how to be kind. Something in us wants to be when the mind gets really clear. So it's passionate in that sense. It's quiet in that it's unassuming, unobtrusive, easily missed. Buddhists are very, uh, you notice, it's not on CNN. No one's coming around with cameras and, you know, let's film these people sitting around quietly. <laughs> I don't think so. I think the ratings would, Fox would do better. Fox will have higher the meditation. No, like my polit- politics is coming in. No politics. I'm, But passion in another sense as well. It's a quiet passion, but it's also a passion for quiet. This needs to be explained a little bit. There are meditative diseases where you get uh attached to silence. I'm not talking about that. In some, sometimes it's called emptiness sickness. Uh, there are people who get very good at having a concentrated mind very good just this simple breath, New- newcomers in out, in out, in out, in out, or there are other, you could do other things, mantra and they're, en- they're not endless but lots of, them. maybe it is endless any object that you give exclusive attention to you can become absorbed in it and please try to follow me what happens when you become absorbed in an object you become so absorbed in an object that you leave behind all that you're afraid of and reluctant to look at all that's intimidating in consciousness our fears, our loneliness, our anger all that kind of stuff the stuff we go into therapy for, we come to meditate for you've become absorbed in this and you have a a, um, it goes into abeyance, you have a holiday from me in a sense, from from the things that are intimidating in your own consciousness. There'll be an opportunity to ask questions if this is not clear. And while you're there, there's a kind of silence and peace. But it's called peace with delusion. Because the joy that you are experience is premised on being secluded from those aspects of your consciousness that you're afraid of intimidated by don't want to look at it's like a child is mischievous give them a nice toy and they get enveloped in the toy no problem and then they get bored with it again and then they start being a problem again so you can get very very calm very very quiet but you remain foolish so you become a quiet fool a very quiet unwise person who Maybe it's somewhat of an improvement, but also <laughs> you're less troubled for others. But also you don't want to be with you know sort of like uh, for you like the flying Willenders, He was a high tightrope walker. For him, he said, "For me, real life is on the on the on the tight high wire. All the rest is just waiting." Okay, there are people you can get really good at this sitting and one object stuff. Really good. Take my word for it. You don't have to take my word for it, but if you want to, you can. You get so good at it that why would you want to get back with people? You know, with all their likes and dislikes, they don't agree with you, and they have different politics, and uh, they love the president, and this one hates it. somehow. And then uh, somehow they're so different from me. And the children screaming, and you know. Uh, Here, ah, in, out, in, out, in, out. Nice feeling, nice feeling. Whoa, I'm gonna do more of this. And then we have to go to work, so we do we kind of get through it and live for the next retreat, whether it's a week or a weekend or whatever it is. And ah, it's again, it's so great. And you can become a bigger misfit than you were before you came to meditation. That is not the purpose of meditation. There are other ways to become even more of a misfit if you want to do them. They take shorter. They're shorter time. They're easier, less expensive. There's a silence that comes through insight. Vipassana practice. Just now picture if you now here's the model of how the practice unfolds. We'll be I follow that model as best I can tomorrow. We only have a, a tongue tip tape, whatever the cliche a little bit of an hors d'oeuvre, a little taste of it. That first part of calming and studying the mind, let's say using the breath, I made fun of it, but it's not trivial. It's a very important aspect of practice as long as it's not misused. Like anything can be misused. If you don't misuse it, what you're doing is you're helping the mind to be capable, equipped, fit, Uh, just the way an athlete can be more fit physically. Now the mind can be more fit, to look at its stuff. you can, you can Because the mind is steadier. And someone, you hear a teacher say, well, unless you're willing to look at your fear, you'll never be free of it. But as soon as fear comes up, the mind is wavers. It, it isn't in a position to look at fear. Or loneliness. Or anger. Or you tell me. Whatever it is that, that you have uh, feelings about not coming in close and being intimate with. When the mind becomes steady, then at least you have an instrument, the seeing, that you've refined on non-threatening things, like breath, like metta, and so forth. In a certain way, the mind has become happy enough to look at its suffering. I know it sounds weird, but the first time I saw that in myself, I had such a good laugh at my own expense. And a Burmese teacher I was working with, Tangpulo Sayadaw, uh, I came in, I told him, every time I sit, I go into great bliss, and bliss and great peace, and then when I get up from the cushion and I start, then there's depression and sadness. Then I can just run back to the cushion and I sit again, and there's great peace and bliss. And then I get up, and there's sadness and depression again. And I had depression is not my way. It's a, when I go, it's a different way. I mean, sometimes I'm human. And he went, he lit up, said, "Great, that's terrific." And I said, "It is." He said, yeah, you're now happy enough to look at that. You've always had that depression and sadness. You think you came to IMS and it was grafted, you got infected here? (laughs) You've always had it. And now you're strong enough internally, there's enough fulfillment so that you can come to something um, and it can be reasonable, workable. Okay, so the peace that comes from understanding yourself, that means you're not afraid of those elements that make up your consciousness. Does that make some sense? Uh, and you've earned that. That's a different kind of peace. And that when that gets really developed, that's the great silence. It's not silence, uh, void, vacuity. It's that the ego is silent. That's the big noise maker, the sense of me. All day long, me and mine, me and mine, me and mine. I want to finish up with just a hint at something. Maybe something can come out in the questions and answers, or tomorrow. We lay practitioners need a practice that is appropriate for us. I'm speaking in general. If this doesn't fit you, then, of course, know that. general means, I'm going to miss some of you. Probably, most of your life will not be spent on a cushion. It will not be spent uh, in retreat. Uh, even those of you who have the time and the resources um, who can get to IMS or other places like it Zen places, Tibetan places, or none of them, neither Um, probably most of us, we have a life, we have to work, we have friends and family we have school, you you know, and we're not going to be on the cushion that much. We handle money uh... and everything that humans do we do or at least we used to or we'd like to that's sex i'm talking about okay you won't get it until you get older we need a practice uh, that turns around daily life which is difficult for Dharma to flourish, and that's why people become monks and nuns. What they're saying is, I'm putting it in my own words, hey, those people out there are nuts. You know, they're driving themselves crazy. I'm one of them. I got, let me, whatever you ask, shave my head, grow a beard, you tell me, give me a special robe, one meal a day, seven meals, just tell me what to do, just get me away from those lunatics. Because when I'm out there, I'm as crazy as they are. And relationship, all I've known is suffering. I fall in love, and then two months later, I'm rejected, and then this, but then someone else loves me, but I don't love them, and you know, uh, it's just on and on. And so we're wounded in life, and typically we crawl into some spiritual uh, battlefield field hospital to get to get healed. And as we start feeling better through meditation practice, which can happen, uh, then the doctors say, great, now you're ready to go back into combat. But maybe we don't want to, because that's where we got wounded. And that's why people become monks and nuns and go off to forests, caves, mountaintops, and so forth. There's a whole mythology, and uh, you know that's a romance, and some of it is real, too, of course. we're not going to do that so we need to learn for example relationship is a very very big one Now, here's been my experience for a long time um coming off long retreats in asia and at ims i noticed that everyone believes in daily life is practice should be part of daily life no one disagrees with that but it's the biggest cliche in Dharma circles in my opinion, with exceptions. Okay. Or people will say, I have three children, three live-ins and masters. All right. Three nudniks is what you have. Anyway, three pains in the ass. Uh, also, are you really becoming wiser or just worn down? Worn out? It's too tired to be able to do any, any damage? So nothing necessarily produces wisdom, uh, and anything can produce wisdom. It has to do with you, with us, what we do with what happens to us. Wisdom's in the heart. It's not in a thing. So can we approach relationship, which is difficult, but if we're not going to go to a monastery, etc., then, since we spend so much of our life, and I don't mean just intimate relationships, partner, uh, man and wife, mom and dad, children, of course, that, that is uh, very, very important, but any time in the presence of a person. Okay. What I saw was that uh, this kind of non-hospitalizable schizophrenia was developing in that you come off retreat feeling great, and then you have fine ways of coping, putting up with, and getting by. And overall, you improve a little bit. Uh, But the truth is, there isn't any dramatic change, or or let's say, dramatic's the wrong word, um, profound, uh, fulfilling, real change in the quality of your ability to be with your fellow human beings. We find it so, that's the real frontier. We haven't learned how to live together. We'll learn how to go to the bottom of the ocean with space, piece of cake, microscopic piece of cake. We can't live with each other, that's the one we don't know anything about, just the track record's all there. Okay, so of course we want to get away from it. There is a Buddhist teaching, by that which you fail is that which you can succeed, or a bad situation is a good situation. But you have to see the very aspects of it that have made it so difficult have an enormous amount of energy packed in there, trapped. And if we can learn how to relate in a fresh and new way, to release ourselves from the problems that exist in relationship, that is not a small thing. Let me give you an example of what I've been up against. We started the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, and whether you know it or not, this is kind of an offshoot of it. I had talks with the founders of it when it wasn't just an idea and it's an attempt to have something in the middle of uh, the full catastrophe as Zorba the Greek put it New York City where could you think of a worse place to have a meditation center that's why we need one right here you can't just keep running away to the country chirp chirp nice but then you come but then you come back and here we are again Okay. There's a Dharma teacher from the West Coast, no names. I'm not going to give you enough so you can figure it out either, so don't try. Uh, he came to Cambridge Insight Meditation Center some years ago and he wanted to know how, to, how we did it because he was going to start something somewhere. Okay. And he asked a lot of questions, what our schedule was, blah, blah, blah. Well, we started the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center not in opposition to the contemplative life at IMS and places like that. I still do self-retreats. I'm all for it. It's wonderful. But it isn't it. Nothing's it. And inevitably you come off the retreat. And so it was an attempt to meet people when they come from retreats or new people uh, to work with us in our life as we find it and to make that a Dharma practice because that's where we live. Okay. So then I told them we have two kinds of interviews, which we do at Cambridge. One are the usual interviews that you have on a retreat. They're, by and large, you 10 minutes. You know, you talk about your practice, basically what sitting and walking is on that retreat. And then you're out, and then someone else comes And So it's limited to what's happening now on the retreat. I so, said, but then we have another interview. It's a half hour. Sometimes it goes longer. And people can talk about their sitting practice, but... We also encourage people talking about relationship, family life, work life, not having a relationship, uh, the pain of loss, whatever it is. And this person said, oh, but why do you have to use a half an hour for that? It's just counseling, isn't it? I said, not really. I'm not a counselor. I'm not trained in that. And he said, I don't know. I think you could just get 10 minutes is enough. I said, no, no, what I'm getting at, of course, there's something let's say, it's not couples counseling or family therapy, as useful as that is. I'm not being sarcastic. I would have died a long time ago in Cambridge if there weren't all kinds of very skillful family therapists, couples counselors, and other therapists, because I could not have handled all the stuff that comes at me without the help of therapists and an army of them absorbing a lot of this stuff. Our guff, our muck, you know what we have to say, okay. so I'm all for couples counseling and even mindful relating to relationship, trying to pay attention. Some of what gets learned is again recognizable. Your relationships can improve. You're better adjusted. You're kinder to your children. You're softer with them. Uh, if you've been with Thich Nhat you'll finally learn how to hug. It'd be an authentic, 100%, genuine hug. Okay. Uh, and those are not small things. But they're not the deepest Dharma teachings it's sort of like psychological well-being uh, more harmony in your life now what I'm talking about is that the highest teachings of the Buddha can be um, experienced and developed refined uh, and used in relationship I'm just going to be able to hint at this because there's no time the Buddha was once pressed he said look Buddha I don't have time, give me the short version. What is all this stuff about? Why are you doing this stuff? said, okay, here's the essence of the teaching. Under under no conditions whatsoever, paraphrasing a little, attach to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. Don't attach to anything as being me or mine. Well, that's a lot of what we're doing all the time. So that's the essence of it. Because that's where the suffering is. And if we can see into that, then the suffering loses its the soil that supports it, and it falls away. Okay. Now, when you're in the presence of another, I have found I've sat long retreats in silence, months, many times, and you feel like you're cleaned out, you don't have a problem in the world, the new you is coming home, and all it takes is a parent, or all it takes is a child, or it can even be a stranger who cuts you off on the freeway, or somebody who... Uh, doesn't speak to it, and suddenly something comes out of us, which is, you did this to me? After all I've done for you, you can do this to me? Please hear what I'm saying. There's nothing, in my experience, like relationship that reveals the ways of the self, of me. It's just so obvious all day long. If somebody is in your presence, even harmless remarks, would you take out the garbage? Okay. Who just sighed? You know, the me that has an important job as a big meditation teacher, but when I come home, the wife tells me to take out the garbage. Okay, so who sighed there? Well, me was slightly insulted, but I know it's not an unrealistic or unreasonable. I'll take it out. What I'm trying to say is that relationship is like a mirror, if you're willing to look, but like a good mirror, you see your pimples. Yeah, but not exactly looking at it from a psychological level, although that comes naturally as well. What we're seeing is selfing. You can see, you can feel it in your body. You can feel me, I'm, do whatever it is. As, you, as somebody is in your presence, there's an effect. You can't help but have a reaction. It's not something we control, it's mechanical, it's conditioned, it's like someone pricks you, you bleed until you've had a lot of work on yourself someone looks at you the wrong way you get it produces something in you well as you begin to see this selfing at work and it's mechanical that is not liberation and that is what we act from that's what brings up children that's what heads countries that I'm not just singling out this president uh, <laughs> that's what is doing everything in the world me okay it's unclarified, it can be confused, and it's mainly concerned with itself, self-cherishing, what's in it for me? Okay, and we're all doing it to each other. Okay, as you begin to see that, you begin to see that the verbal and physical actions that come out of that are, in the Buddhist language, not all that skillful. Very often they are not beneficial. That's what skillful means in the Buddhist language. They're not beneficial for you. They're not beneficial for others in your life. Now, as you become more and more aware of selfing, I'm making that a verb, the presence of another produces this sense of me. You can't miss it if you're willing to take that on as a practice. And as you learn how to do that, you won't be able to do it at first. It's like you'll get thrown again and again, or you'll forget. Little by little, it can be learned like anything else, but you really have to want to learn it. As you begin to learn it, the power out of this selfing starts to dissipate itself. And then what's replaced by it in the in an instant is a mind that's at least a little bit clearer. And sometimes it's very much clearer. And from that place, it's possible for a response to come out, whether it's verbal or act, physical action. A response is not a reaction. A reaction's mechanical. A response is fresh. Uh, there's room for creativity. There's room for more kindness. Uh, suddenly you see things and the actions surprise you, what you say surprise you. For me, the best preparation for giving a talk is to just sit in silence, not to go over any notes or anything like that. Now, sometimes you can say the very same thing to a child. Maybe it's no, but the no that comes out of reactivity has a different energy in it. You parents know this, and if the no comes out of an an emptier mind, a clear mind, a clearer at least, the no has a different energy also. And that energy somehow is more able to be received by the child. It's not coming from reactivity. And it makes all the difference in the world. So your relationships benefit, but you're also starting to weaken what is the root problem of Dharma, which is attachment to whatever happens to us as being me or mine. Okay, your misery is over. The talk is officially closed. You can now ransack the bars, coffee shops, whatever you want to do. Um, What I'd like to do, and I'm willing to stay a few minutes longer, um, is those of you who need to leave... By the way, I should have said this. some of you needed to leave earlier and you probably thought you were rude. It wouldn't have been. I apologize. I know that you have more to life than just sitting here. If you want to just quickly stretch, move if you need to, but I'm uh, I'm ready for any questions and I'll do my best. Okay, stretch and then we'll have a question. Probably the beginners have run out of here as fast as they can. dokey, let's uh, let's see if we can anything to talk over together. Any hands or anything, anything really, please. I noticed, mercifully you only use the word spiritual once. I don't like the word. I, whenever I hear it, now I start to reach for my gut. That's right. <laughs> or your wallet, one or the other. <laughs> yeah. uh, and as a former Christian, I have a particular prejudice the word of, Attachment leads to suffering. But maybe because of my suffering. Right? It could be. But Just a word. I'm, what I'm alarmed about is in all these spiritual groups that I've been exploring since I am 16, I'm now 61, one we'll finds such an enormous amount of spiritual zombies. And they do become quite disembodied and detached, if not sanctimonious myths. <laughs> That's what we will become if you do this sincerely. But it's not good for business to admit it. Yeah. Uh, certainly, I, there. Are, I, I I know what you're talking about. Uh, could that be the real fruit of what I'm talking about? Not really. I mean, what's the point? Why bother becoming? Do you need training to become a zombie? I don't. You know, what's the point? In other words, are you doubting that it's possible for a person to? Grow into something rather alive? I do question even the Buddhist approach of detachment. But, you know those programs where you have a buzzer? Sometimes, (laughs) you know, okay.